Hello, this is the Grin Podcast, and I'm Hindulsan Gupta. I am absolutely delighted to welcome my latest guest, Professor Gautam Desi Raju. Now, Gautam Desi Raju is renowned for many things, but primarily, he is a scientist, a professor at the Indian Institute of Science. He is a recipient of many, many awards, and he's now written a book. That book is called Bharat India 2.0. Professor Desi Raju, most of your work has been in understanding crystals better. How did you come to this topic in your book? And very welcome. Thank you, Indol. It's a pleasure to join you in the podcast this afternoon. And you uh, talk about crystals. So I would say. any crystal has a structure and the part of crystals that i am most interested in is crystal engineering how you design and build a structure so you see the ground rules for building anything are pretty much the same and therefore i tried to use well in a philosophical sense i should say uh similar procedures and rules as to how a constitution is built up and in any such building activity or construction activity in chemistry we call it synthesis there are two vital components which are actually and ideally independent one is strategy and one is methodology so strategy means the plan how you define a plan could be a house plan it could be a plan for a crystal it could be a plan for a constitution and the second is methodology how you actually implement the plan so you see these two are actually quite different from one another and that's why i said ideally they should not have too much overlap because when strategy and methodology start overlapping with each other then both get into a mess which i think to some extent has happened in the case of uh, our constitution but since you asked about it uh, this is a question that has been asked to me in a simpler way the people say you are a scientist why did you write a book on uh, the constitution but you have asked it in a nice way and that's why i've given you this sort of an answer which i hope shows some kind of a conceptual similarity any building any construction any synthesis will have these two components in them fascinating let me then begin i was i read your book with great care uh, let me begin with uh, as a historian one of the things that your book reminds us about is that our founding fathers many of them at least understood that there's a conceptual difference between the state and the nation and you mentioned this in your book that there is a difference between the state and there is a difference between the nation the state and the nation are fundamentally different yeah. and conceptually the state derives its legitimacy from something and the nation derives its legitimacy legitimacy from something else the state derives its legitimacy perhaps from something like a constitution whereas a nation derives its legitimacy from a different set of factors 
and your efforts to redefine india's constitutional parameters rests at least to me it seems upon this fundamental question and our understanding between the difference of a state compared to a nation would that be correct yes it's a question that a historian would ask and should ask uh, once again it's a very nice question see prasad actually was well aware of this you of course talking about rajendra prasad rajendra prasad now and i mentioned this in the book uh, he in his writings in the early 40s and so on he was well aware of the fact that state and nation are different and i think this was actually at the origin of his very deep seated disagreement with nehru throughout his term as president of india you know hindu looking in hindsight i think uh, prasad was one of these people who is actually been grossly underestimated by our system yes it is true that he was the first, it it is true he was the first president of india and so on but people tend to forget his role as the chairman of the constituent assembly the president of the constituent assembly and people also forget the book he wrote in 1946 i think it was called india divided or something like that where he actually does a meticulous district wise you know comparison of hindu and muslim population in both punjab and bengal and people are also unaware of his contributions in the two decades before that uh, in the freedom struggle itself so here was a person who was highly educated passionate about his country and deeply nationalistic it's a matter of regret that the events between say 1950 and 1955 which saw the primacy of nehru over say people like prasad and Purushottam Das Tandon and all the other people, the nationalistic part of the Congress as it existed in 1950, and coming back to nation and state, Prasad was all too aware of this. The state gets its legitimacy only from certain technical things. That state is more or less a country. You know, country is only geographical limits. They can issue passports and they have a currency, which. Uh, they use within their territorial limits and they prevent other people from other countries entering it and so on now then you come to this nation idea and then the idea of indian nation and whether it is coincides with the hindu nation several decades later vajpayee said that he saw no difference between hindu nation and indian nation now i myself have a basic problem with the word india that is why while i have no problem in defining hindu nation i have a problem in defining indian nation because i i don't know what indian nation actually means uh and then in the case of india of course it's a very very special case uh, hindol because uh, 
we are at a higher level than a nation and that is a civilization so once again i think we have struggled for many decades because i feel once again because nehru was wedded to that concept we tried to fashion ourselves as a nation state which we are not so there is something called a hindu nation i would say that instead of using all these foreign words simply call it bharat and then that's the end of all our problems because then we will exactly know who we are or what we are where we are and how we are and i think that is really the running thread uh, through the whole book one of the questions that arises when we talk about a civilizational nation and of course many of us are doing work on this subject is that who does the civilizational nation include and who does it exclude that's number 1 number 2 at what point does the civilization begin and what all does it encompass does it encompass the entire history of that particular nation state i mean that's where all these muddles of terminology begin right i mean which part of history is to be included what is not to be included mm-hmm. and i wonder how you look at these dilemmas of constructing uh, a sort of um, you know a theory of india as a civilization mm-hmm. state mm-hmm. well, i'm not a historian but i am going to give a historical type answer and uh, in history you have the freedom and in fact the luxury of looking at things in uh, century time scales you don't have to necessarily restrict yourself to smaller periods of time sometimes so where does this civilization begin now any civilizational state depends strongly on geography so unless you have the land you know the sanskrit word dhara which i uh, quote in the book without the land there is no civilization because all our idioms everything that we do in fact the air we breathe everything has to do with our land so if you were to take bharat varsha now you could at one extreme start with say a region which is somewhere say in the afghanistan iran that sort of a border and then you could go in the north up to the say pamir mountains and then on the east you could come down to the kind of a fuzzy area near myanmar thailand and a little south of that even and then come down south towards the ocean sri lanka and let us say the indian ocean basin because i think the indian ocean itself uh, is part of this bharatvarsha now this is a broad outline but mind you this is not a political thing i am talking about but in terms of a civilizational area the central core part of this the political part is our present day political country called india but i think you have now what i will use a chemistry word we have buffer regions and as a historian you will know that powerful states have traditionally relied on buffers 
which uh, insulate them from other powerful states in the area and for us we have russia china and say the oil rich middle east as three other powerful entities in our vicinity so if you were to take i mean forget if you would the political situation as it prevails today suppose you were going to start today and say let's go up to 2060 2070 and so on another 50 years from now i see the buffer regions around political india as always being in a state of flux buffer regions are like that so today there's a lot of media interest on whether pakistan is going to crumble or not and things like that and i'm not necessarily going to get involved in that kind of a discussion but what shall i say i mean the redefinition of east pakistan as bangladesh was one such uh, movement where the civilization was trying to adjust itself again and similarly i see tomorrow i do not for example see the present day political pakistan as existing for any real length of time there will be certain you know pulls and pushes there will be changes and things like that but above all and most important and i have said that early in the book one is an indian if one thinks like an indian there are different definitions of citizenship formal citizenship but in the terms of nationhood and especially civilizational awareness if people think in a certain way they belong to this whole grouping of people because when you start i mean right now there is a cricket match going on between pakistan and england and i've been communicating with a friend on twitter he's a pakistani who lives in canada and we are discussing the batsmen and the bowlers and what's going on so see we are think both of us are thinking in the same way it's not any fundamental difference in the way in which we are thinking this is very important in a civilizational state so let me ask and you then this, this you. is this is really what i was trying to get at in the book and uh, so one is not seeking political aggrandizement and taking over other territories actually the more the merrier and uh, india is such a big country that it needs this buffer china for example does the same thing i mean if you take xinjiang and tibet and all these things it views these places as necessary buffers it which it must have vis-a-vis say russia and india and so on so it's a, what i'm saying about india is nothing new so let me ask you uh, you said one becomes a citizen if one thinks like a citizen one becomes an indian if one thinks like an indian in your mind what does thinking like an indian really mean what would be the top 3 or 4 ways that you think thinking like an indian really means hmm this is again a good question this could be highly subjective but i think one of the chief features of thinking like an indian is to show a great deal of respect to people who are older than you and sometimes i think this crosses even the bounds of you know even though there some of these people may not be you may not be in total agreement with them or you may feel that they are saying something that is 
not really fully correct and so on the amount of respect we show to people simply because of the age i think that is in my mind probably the topmost civilizational aspect that we have the second aspect which we have and this is related to the first is a deep seated affection and respect towards one culture it is commonly said in the west in those that religion becomes less important when a country progresses economically and this might be true in western europe and the usa but you will notice that in india over the last 30 years there is no doubt that economically we have improved since 1991 but with this economic improvement in fact the religiosity seems to have gone up it has not gone down so the importance given to religion culture tradition whatever you want to call it i think this is another very unique aspect about india so first is the elder thing the second is the respect given to religion and culture the third i feel and this is i think it has come down right from our shastras when we had a unique uh, creation of shruti and smriti see the genius of our people placed a certain number of things in an unchangeable portion in the scriptures the shrutis and then they placed other things in the changeable portion which is the smriti now any culture civilization that has this very advanced concept would be highly pragmatic practical and up to date because not only did they know what is permanent and cannot be changed and should not be changed they also knew the things that had to be changed so i would feel that people in the bharatiya civilization are highly pragmatic and are of a problem solving disposition it's quite another matter that we were put into an economically very strained situation post 1950 and the typical bharatiya solution to this kind of a very awkward situation was what we call jugad now jugad is just a kind of a trivial and almost degraded version of creativity but it shows that again this is something i have probably i think i am a little qualified to talk about this because i have visited up to say 40 countries in the world and i've had a fair experience in dealing with people outside india over the last 50 years and i will feel that our ability to innovate come up with a practical solution which also works quite well and be able to surmount fairly difficult problems i think is again a characteristic it, it is not something which i find comes very easily to the western civilization and uh, this may it's a it's a kind it may sound like a vague answer but something as broad as thinking like an indian it has to be it has to be 
somewhat fuzzy so all the three things i have told you are not precise things where you can take me to a court of law and say you have not done this but i think you sort of get the idea as to what distinguishes us so much and one thing i will say again from having seen so many foreigners from so many different places we are actually quite unique there is no other country which is really quite like us and by that i mean there is no other civilization that is quite like us so that's obviously one of the criteria for countries to defining themselves right i mean the americans have american exceptionalism uh, yes. the british certainly thought themselves as unique china certainly thinks of itself as unique as a middle kingdom and of course we think ourselves as unique yes. uh, perhaps uh, you know you could ponder for a minute or so about you know what is different between or what is different in civilizational states because you know other countries think of themselves as unique too uh, is it a criteria for rising states because you know america when it rose defined american exceptionalism colonial powers certainly thought of themselves as unique uh, i i, I get your britain. question i get your question china See, now you, you know as a large rising power thinks of itself as unique and next up is india is that correct you have provided the answer already hindol uh, in your previous question all these big civilizations and let me say for civilization i will say india china for sure trying to define itself as a civilization russia and then you have what i might call the western civilization which is probably america and its allies in western europe whether you want to keep europe and the emerosphere as a different civilization or not is something i leave to you so you have roughly got between 4 four and a half or five big civilizations in the world i think what defines all these big civilizations is the way of thinking the way of thinking is fundamentally different in each of these five civilizations so chinese think different indians think different about the same matter i mean not think different about different matters but you give them a same phenomenon a same crisis a same issue a same problem people in each of these civilizations will think about it in an entirely different manner so what i think defines a civilization is the manner of thinking whereas if you go to say belgium or if you go to serbia there is no serbian way of thinking and there is no belgian way of thinking unless it concerns a very trivial matter but there is an american way of thinking and i think that is really what separates a nation state from a civilizational state let's get a little bit into the nitty gritties now you said that uh, of course when one thinks about what constitutes an indian way of thinking it has to be slightly fuzzy because it's difficult to drill down into absolute or exact details but one thing we can drill down into absolute and exact details of course is a concept that you tackle head on in your book bharat india 2.0 on whether india needs a different kind of constitution and if it needs a different kind of constitution what kind of constitution does it need what would what should it contain how should it be framed take us through how you're thinking about this the answer to the first part of your question 
and would be apparent to anyone who reads my book is that absolutely yes we need a new constitution we cannot manage any more with these amendments because the amendments are just making the problem worse for reasons that i outline in the final chapter of my book so we need a new constitution i believe it should be a dharmic constitution and let me explain what i mean by dharmic if you go back to the vedas and uh, the one thing they say for any state that is to exist and be viable it should see that its people are happy and it should vanquish its enemies i think if these two major threads come into our constitution then i think we would be going a long way towards establishing a dharmic civilizational state in bharat and i feel neither of these attributes have been properly addressed in our present constitution our present constitution is trying to do micromanaging for the first issue of trying to keep the people happy but you know it's trying to make everybody happy and in the end it has ended up making nobody particularly happy this is what is my assessment of this constitution after you know 72 years or something like that so keeping the people happy means basically what do you mean you cannot establish dharma without artha and the strength of the us constitution for instance is that the adhering states realize that although they may have certain political differences with each other in economic matters the 13 states that formed the original usa their economic interests were very very close so i think in any new constitution which i feel we must have the economy the overall economy i'm not talking about you know little little things that we do from 5 years to 5 years but how do you make india into the numero you know country financially by 2075 not in ppp terms but in absolute terms suppose you put that as a goal a constitution should if because if we get there then the people will be happy the second thing that our existing constitution simply becomes silent i mean you can say that they tried to make everybody happy but they didn't succeed but on the second matter of being vanquished by vanquishing your enemies our constitution says nothing about zero so i think any new constitution which must have this defense thing strongly worked into i mean the us constitution uses this word uh, defense defense is right there right in the uh, well not in the constitution but i think it's there in the declaration of independence or something it comes in one of the early documents of in the us so defense is something that is it's it's not hardly there in our constitution so i think when when i say dharmic i am not taking a literal interpretation that some of our friends today are doing and saying that literally to bring up the names of lord krishna or lord rama and things like far from that i am saying that what is the essential lesson we learn from the vedas and uh, i have quoted again from you know 
the lalita sahasranamam where it is written you know dharma dhara dhana dyaksha dhana dhanya vivardhini so dharma dhara the person who herself bears dharma she is the one to uphold dharma dhana dyaksha the mani and dhana dhanya vivardhini i mean it i think it could not be more clearly mentioned than in just these few small words they are not small words they are big words but they are written in a nice small way and i think this is the essential picture that this is what i mean by rashtra and if this vedic rashtra or you know hindu rashtra whatever you want to call it for me this is hindu rashtra is nothing else so if you say well what are you saying that uh, no other country has said well okay fine i mean the us also actually there is more resemblance between this and the us constitution than one would care to comment on because the us constitution of course also does things in the name of god so to speak correct and um, it would be interesting to understand which god that is of course the framers of that constitution uh thought of it as a christian god um well, in, i wonder in whether context indol if i may interrupt in today's context it doesn't even matter which god so long as you admit that there is something called god a higher entity which in the end controls the activities of all of us if you are willing to admit that then i think that should be enough so this is an important thing isn't it because when people talk about uh you know elements of religion or spirituality coming into a new framework of constitution one of the worries that people cite is that well does that mean hindu and if it means hindu does it keep keep away other religions and so on and so forth but you are saying something slightly different aren't you you're saying that as long as there's a framework for a sort of um, you know spiritual divine sort of element or or uh, attribute mm-hmm. in a new framework of the constitution it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be defined as what divine entity or where this divine entity sort of resides right exactly exactly i mean how long have human beings or civilized human beings lived on the planet 6 7 8000 years roughly and how long have we been into this kick of uh, saying we want to do everything so secular that uh, we even want to deny the existence of religion after the industrial revolution not even 200 years so where is 6 7 8 000 years and what is 200 years i think it's time we sat and looked back a little about all these things and it's sir uh, it's not a sin to think back about religion a little bit it doesn't matter which religion it's not a sin to consider whether you can i mean in the language of uh, shruti and smriti well, what did vivekananda say finally he said that sanatan dharma is a higher canopy that into a higher spiritual plane which in the long run is the only way we can manage things today in all like sustainability like disruptive thinking especially in scientific thought how to feed clothe and keep 8 billion people happy it cannot work with this post industrial revolution western model with which we have been condemned 
to live in over the last 200 years i say condemned because india was not one of those favored countries which benefited from this model so i don't see therefore you know why we should keep uh, even quoting a model like this which is actually quite irrelevant for us today especially the aspirational india of today where people have finally begun you said i i believe the main thing which will herald india 2.0 which i believe has not yet started but its beginning is imminent now is when people of this countries figure out completely who they are so far we have been wandering around hindol for 70 80 years not knowing exactly who we are so now when we begin to become a little clearer about this i feel many of these issues will come back to us and again as swami vivekananda said the business of this country is religion so if you try to deny that you may deny it in the rest of the world but you can't deny it in this country interesting so essentially as we come towards the end of our conversation essentially if i were to sort of sum up your book argues for bharat india 2.0 that's the name of your book it argues quite strongly for a reimagination of india's conceptual frameworks of statehood and nationhood and of course in that context it suggests that a new constitution must be created for india and that constitution in your opinion must have a sort of embedded spirituality a sort of deeper connection to you know spiritual needs of people and what those needs really mean in day to day life in our economic life in our material life in our political life in our social life because you believe that need or that idea is fundamental to the idea of india and if you keep aside spirituality then the you know the the very foundations of india you know disappear and that's why because we in a sense kept it away we have been floundering for a long time isn't that the broad you know uh, spectrum of ideas in your book see i couldn't have said it more clearly or more accurately than you have i will only just add a final statement from my side you began this interview talking about science and i will end also talking about science please go on we've lost professor desi raju there for a moment yeah we lost you there for a moment please go on i just, let, let me just finish it's not going to take a minute no no I not said, at all we just i think we could hear you for a, a few seconds please yeah i mean all saying, this has been written by science. a hardcore scientist this is all i was saying Yeah please and go on so you were saying let me end there is nothing science. there go is on. nothing in science and religion that contradicts each other at least not sanatan dharma and i feel that in that sense i have been uniquely fortunate that i am a sanatani in this bharat and so i don't see any contradiction between all the hardcore science i have done 
and some of the ideas that i put forth in my book otherwise everything you have said is completely accurate so wonderful summary of my book you have done wonderful uh, your book of course is called bharat india 2.0 uh my apologies to the listeners the connectivity broke for a few seconds there right at the end please bear with us on this but it was wonderful talking to professor gautam desi raju he is one of india's most cited living scientists he's of course a professor at the indian institute of science in bangalore bangalore and he has been a prolific thinker on indian issues not just in the sciences but also about the concepts of indian nationhood and his new book just out is called bharat india 2.0 thank you professor for joining me in this conversation thank you hindol it's been a great pleasure talking to you over the past half hour or so thank you